Today, Thanksgiving and loss. It may seem like a grim way to approach the early winter holiday in America, but hear me out. At the end of November 2021, some 770,000 people in the U.S. have died from COVID-19. That's according to the CDC. That's three quarters of a million people missing from the table this Thanksgiving. Three quarters of a million empty places in the lives of families. Millions of people trying to make sense of death. And then Thanksgiving comes. Loss knits us together. Grief and gratitude side by side. Back in 1995, the Irish-Canadian writer Emma Donoghue's second novel, Hood, tells the story of how seemingly contradictory emotions can coexist in our lives. Up and down the street poured the Saturday afternoon crowd, mothers bent on finding perfect autumn overcoats, men in greasy tweed hats, bored suburban girls bringing 9.99 bargains to show off to friends. From here, I could hear the familiar, queasy mix of at least three buskers, that interminable Annie song on flute, I thought, and the man with the African drums and a brass band. I watched the ground. The reddish bricks disappeared and reappeared as the feet and coats rushed over them. My car would definitely get a ticket now. I realized that I didn't care if she got three tickets and was towed away. The sound of the flute lifted for a bar or two above the clang of the brass band, and I was happy, perversely, incredulously, momentarily happy. When it was gone and the wave had dropped my feet down hard against the pavement, the crowd looked different to me. The shoppers were no more likable, but they did have faces. It came into my head that everyone on this street had either gone through a loss more or less equivalent to mine or would do so by the end of their life. Some would have it easier, some worse, some over and over. Imagine if a giant hand in the sky gestured us to stop this minute, figures frozen halfway through a stride or a sentence, all along Grafton Street. If the hand gestured for us to tell what was really preoccupying us, then death would be on every second mouth. My mam's gone for more tests, one would admit. And the next, well, my uncle and my teacher went last year. And another, our first was stillborn. And another, I have a feeling this Christmas may be my last. I wanted to make everyone sit down on the sun-warmed pavement, arranging their bags and bundles around them, and turn to their neighbor to talk about this huge headline hanging over us. Who have you lost to death, they would ask each other. Who are you afraid of losing? Who are you glad to see taken? And when do you think death might come for you? The brass band should be playing a triumphant funeral march, and the sun should be making skeleton shadows of our bodies on the gaps of pavement between the groups. The signs behind the polished glass fronts should say, 
How many shopping days left? It made no sense to be talking about anything else. And why do we pretend to be strangers when we were all webbed together by the people we had lost and the short future we had in common? Through the crowd, I saw a girl running down the street, only the back of her. All I could make out was a rusty head of hair catching the light whenever she emerged from a building shadow, probably running for a bus or 25 minutes late to meet a friend at Bewley's. She had almost disappeared into the wide mouth of the crowd. I saw something moving, but wasn't sure if it was her. My eyes let her slip. The crowd was swirling. No longer frozen in my vision, it was Saturday afternoon, and there were coats to be tried on, and teacups to drain. Loss and Gratitude. It's the 2021 Thanksgiving edition of the Hear Me Now podcast that comes to you from the Providence Institute for Human Caring. On today's program, we welcome Chloe Zelka back to the podcast to talk about the COVID Grief Network. Our mission is to undo isolation for people who are young adults, people in their 20s and 30s who have lost someone close to COVID. Pandemic grievers are confronted with this strange paradox of being bombarded by news that X hundred thousand people in our country have lost somebody and actually not knowing anyone or knowing very few people. I'm Sean Collins speaking to you from a place that was once the homeland of the Niutachi, Osage, and Illini peoples on the right bank of the Mississippi at the confluence with the Missouri, mindful of all the unjust loss that statement represents. Stay with us. Chloe Zelka is a rabbinical student at Hebrew Union College in Cincinnati and a founder of the COVID Grief Network. Chloe was on our program a few months ago when we talked about the work of chaplains, and she's back now. Chloe, it's so good to have you back. Thanks so much for including me. That image that Emma Donahue uses in Hood, that profound loss is something we all have felt or something we all will feel, and that it unifies us is so powerful. Yeah, that line, why do we pretend to be strangers when we're all webbed together by the experience of grief of some sort or another is is really powerful. And maybe it's true that part of the healing is in stopping pretending to be strangers or finding people that you can feel that connection with. Is the COVID grief network doing that for people? I think so. Our Our mission is to undo isolation for people who are young adults, people in their 20s and 30s who have lost someone close to COVID. And we hear all the time that pandemic grievers are confronted with with this strange paradox of often seeing on TV and being bombarded by news that, you know, X hundred thousand people in our country and so many people around the world are have lost somebody to COVID-19 and actually not knowing 
anyone or knowing very few people um, feeling isolated in their life from young people who have had that experience. Or, and so often meeting with a group of other people your own age who really do get it is transformative immediately. We don't need to even do anything. Um, often it's just a matter of connecting those people. Hmm. Tell me about the mechanics of the network. How do people get connected to one another and to you all? So people go to our website and, and fill out a short form, um, kind of application about, uh, who they are and who they've lost and, and what they're looking for. We have a few different ways to connect. Um, some people just want to connect on our Facebook group. That's like a really informal way of, of chatting with other young people who've had this experience. Um, most people want to join a, a support group, a group um, of 12 people in their 20s and 30s who've lost somebody. Some of our groups are are further affinity groups, like groups for people of color for specific kinds of loss. Um, and those groups meet for eight weeks every week for uh, an hour and a half. And, and actually all of our groups um, have opted after the official end to continue informally meeting without their facilitator. Um, and... We um, have have done other kinds of support in the past. Right now, we're really focusing on the group work because we've noticed that's the most powerful and transformative. But um, over the summer, we ran a pilot of a of a care pairs program um, inspired by the dinner party, another wonderful organization that just focused on matching individuals um, to one other person who's had a really similar experience as them. So. Um, maybe two people who've both lost um, both parents to COVID or two people who've lost, um, you know, a dear cousin who was really like a sibling um, and no one seems to understand. So, and, and just connecting them for informal conversation with kind of a guide. Um, and in our first year, we focused on one-on-one -on -one support um, in the kind of acute loss phase. So we had over a hundred volunteers offering free one-on-one -on -one sessions for young adults. And that's remarkable. Offered more than a thousand sessions. Oh my gosh. What a, what an incredible humane response that your facilitators have had those volunteers. It's incredible. It's been pretty powerful to see the response from chaplains and therapists and spiritual care providers and, um, facilitators who, I think in the beginning of, of the pandemic, the group that was getting this network together, we didn't know if anyone would be generous enough to donate their time. Like people who are often in professions that already suck so much life and um, of their life force out of them. Uh, and we were shocked to see, I mean, I think within the first month we had like 400 applications or something of people really just wanting to be there. Hmm. Um, for people who are losing people. There's an image that's been in my head since we started planning this episode. Given that we publish our podcast on the second and fourth Thursday of every month, so it means Thanksgiving is always a day that we have to put an episode together for. And, um, but the image that's in my head is there are hundreds of thousands of people, maybe millions of people, who are sitting around a table today and there's someone missing from that table. 
um, that's extraordinary. It's something that would happen during war. Mm -hmm. And yet at the same time, there are people denying that this is a real thing, <laughs> mm. which just seems so absurd to me that people are experiencing real loss. And at the same time, people in the culture are saying this isn't a big deal. Yeah. I mean, it makes me think of the beginning of the whole COVID story where we were being bombarded with a government that shows denial very explicitly. Um, and so just starting with denial as the tone when denial is really the kryptonite of people who are grieving, like the one of the only medicines that works for a grieving heart is being heard and seen and acknowledged. You know, there's no way to fix or change the loss. And so it becomes about really bearing witness to it with integrity and, and finding others who can see you and see the breaking. Uh, and so I, I don't think you can overemphasize the negative impact that a culture of denial has had on these people. We see a lot of anger and rage uh, come up in our groups, both from folks who feel like maybe if things had, had gone differently on a policy level that their loved ones would be alive and that a lot of this might have been preventable, um, and also from folks feeling like it's just too much to not be seen or to, to have the reality of the, of the thing denied. It definitely feels like part of sitting down at the Thanksgiving table is having the courage to actually just name that it's different and have it be different. In our groups right now, we're talking a lot about ways to uh, make it through a moment that where it's just laid bare how much has been lost and maybe ways to make it new or ways to have it just be a different kind of ritual than, than before. But I think more than, more than making it new, it's, it's maybe just been about like b being gentle with ourselves such that we can like see the next day. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You know, for 30 years, I've heard people in the field talk about disenfranchised grief um, with a sort of intellectual understanding of what that means. Mm. But this this feels like a mass experience of disenfranchised grief where there are whole segments of the population that because of their denial are disenfranchising their neighbors from mm. being able to, to mourn something that otherwise you think, you know, we would rally around one another. I mean, imagine if there was any other event or pandemic that would take hundreds of thousands of lives in this country that hadn't been politicized. Mm. People would be rallying around and offering support in a way that's just not happening. Yeah, it, it feels like a spiritual tragedy, the sort of denial that's taken away people are grieving's ability to be witnessed in their pain. I, I know there are so many beautiful projects trying to publicly, you know, we deal mostly with private grief. There are other projects that are working on kind of grieving publicly, uh, which I think in this case becomes really, really important. Like with memorials or? Yeah, or with memorials. Um, there's a 
quilt project that I'm, or, oh gosh, what is this project that I'm thinking of? Um, I know that Marked by COVID, um, a wonderful group that's focusing on organizing people who've lost someone to COVID towards political change and kind of pandemic prevention. And um, they've really taken up the cause of public grief and are lobbying for a annual Memorial Day um, and a mm-hmm. memorial in D.C. Um, and all sorts of like physical local art projects that are giving people an outlet to, to set up public altars. Hmm. Well, um, you know, as a 60 year old gay man, I'll say that the first viral event that I dealt with personally was of course, HIV and AIDS in its early days. And there was denial about it. I mean, the white house went for years without ever mentioning the name of the, the disease. And then when it did mention it, it joked about it. But what seemed to cut through the social denial in some areas was art and Mm. things like the AIDS Memorial quilt that would bring small groups Mm. of people together to give them a task that would sort of channel their, their anger and their grief. And then when you put all that together, it Mm. was extraordinary to see it. I mean, the first time I saw it, it, it filled the ellipse uh, near the White House. And the second time I saw it, it filled the entire mall between the Capitol and the Washington Monument. And it was it was a brilliant use of art to shame mm. the public and shame the government mm. into paying attention to a viral illness that mm. could be prevented. Yeah, I know there are especially queer and trans folks on our team who feel really connected and like they're kind of standing on the shoulders of the act, the folks from ACT UP and all the um, amazing organizing that happened around AIDS. And I think, I remember there was an amazing effort early in the pandemic from a group called Naming the Lost. And they, they just got on Zoom and read the names of everyone who had died from covid up until that point, and it took 24 hours. Mm. And so they were up all night, and um, the chat just exploded with people who had lost someone who felt so seen and were newly reaching out to be seen more and supported. Um, so there is something about, I guess it's not art in the same way, but there's something about creating spaces where we can see it clearly. Mm-hmm. I almost think that art sometimes, including efforts like you just mentioned, succeed because they trick us into paying attention to something that we weren't paying attention to before. It's like it, your brain wasn't really prepared to be confronted with a truth. Yeah. And the art sneaks in somehow and says, pay attention to this. Yeah, we had an amazing um, experience of working with the Broadway cast of Rent to do a video where they sang Seasons of Love um, and we offered the opportunity for our young adults to send in videos and pictures and record record videos of themselves talking about their lost loved ones um, around the year marker of m- marking a year of COVID um, and 
yeah, I think the, it was interesting to see the way the music changed people's ability to be, to have their hearts opened. Hmm. Um, and not just people who are fans of rent, but like just the, yeah, their permission to feel something that music can open up. Hmm. I'm talking to Chloe Zelka, founder of the COVID Grief Network. Chloe, how do you think this experience of the network is going to have an impact on your ministry as a rabbi? Mm. One of the things that we've learned from organizing the network so far, and most of us are young adults who've lost someone ourselves um, in the past, um, some of us due to COVID and some of us uh, earlier. One of the things we've learned is to let the moment lead. You know, I thought of myself as a chaplain in training before um, COVID hit. I had been working at UCSF Medical Center as a resident um, and sitting at the bedsides of folks who are ill and dying. Um, but chaplaincy did feel to me as something kind of that takes place in a hospital Hmm. or at a university or, um, at a prison or in the military, but in these specific places. And, uh, as soon as we had a pandemic, I mean, this was true before, but as soon as we had a pandemic where it, it became clear that spiritual care needed to be everywhere and not everyone is in the hospital or the university or the military or prison and et cetera. Just kind of like having the guts to try something new and see if it totally fell on its face um, feels like a lesson I want to take into my ministry. Hmm. And then also just the the power of groups. There's a, there's a really deep connection between a spiritual caregiver, caregiver of some kind, grief worker, and the person grieving. But there's also a really powerful connection in just meeting other people who know what it's like, who really, really get it. And we notice that when you get those people together, magic happens. And so it's just, it's just connecting people and creating a container that can hold some some conversation. What a great lesson to launch into your next career with both of those, that ministry of chaplaincy can be something that's going on sort of in the general population. That's such a great image, by the way. It doesn't have to happen in a hospital or a prison or a school. And the other being that groups might be the way to bring healing. I think those are both really powerful. And yeah, and the group thing has been true for our facilitators too, mm. because at its best, I think this work changes us permanently, us caregivers, if we let it. So having a group of buddies to walk that path with as you're talking to people who are going through unimaginable pain is really important. So we, we try to see the care as extending, not, not just to the young adults, but to the people serving them. I have two rabbi friends um, here in St. Louis, a couple alumni of your alma mater there in Cincinnati, uh, James Stone Goodman and Susan Talvey. And in the fall of 2020, after the first debate, they felt a broken place. Like it was like it was like country was wounded in some way. And as they put it, um, what we do in our tradition is... Uh, use the Psalms when 
mm. when someone's sick and the country's sick at the moment. And mm. so they they launched into this analysis of the Psalms, sort of praying with them, um, talking about the text, talking about political implications of the text. Mm. And then Jim is a poet and he would take as a starting point the text and write something new. And they met online every morning except on uh, the Sabbath. Mm. And people joined them online. I was there most mornings. And we started with Psalm number one and went through Psalm 150 and took them all in a row. And you tried to find what we were being offered there, mm. right? But what was so powerful about it was that we were doing it as a group. There were, you know, 20 people, 15 people, 10 people there. But there was a core group that was, was often showing up. And, hmm. and it was all being done online, you know. And, and there was, it was just as valid and powerful as, you know, showing up in a church basement to meet, hmm. right? It was, it was life-giving. Hmm. It kept me sane during that part of the pandemic. Yeah, I don't know if you if this was a theme in your diving into the Psalms, but it seems to me like one of the most beautiful parts of that part of our wisdom literature is that it really validates the range of human emotion and experience. Precisely. And, you know, you can just see and feel anger and despair and jealousy and... And hatred mm, and... yeah. I got it after that. I hadn't gotten it before. I had been a monk for mm. five years and had chanted those texts with my community. And I never understood the sort of, I, w I shied away from the, the anger language. And suddenly I didn't want to shy away from it. I wanted to embrace that. And the songs of ascent and the sort of lifting up of the spirit. Yeah, there's something profoundly powerful in just getting permission to feel it all. And there's, in my mind, or at least in my experience, there's no way to move through it without feeling it all. There's no way out except through uh, mm. when we're going through hard times. So I feel lucky to be a part of a religious tradition that can hold up that kind of just pure expression of emotion as prayer. Mm. And it makes me feel in my prayer life that I can feel what I need to feel and to be uncensored, unedited before what's holy and before my community. Look, if it's good enough for the Psalms, it's good enough for me. <laughs> good enough for David. It'll work for Chloe. <laughs> you know, one question I've, I have is the focus of the network on young people. It, seems paradoxical to me in some way, because in the beginning of COVID, it was often seen as a disease that was affecting older people. And then to see that you had reached out to younger people who were affected by it strikes me as, as powerful. And I'm curious what the origin of that was. Yeah. So I think it's first important to say that, of course, death of loved ones can be devastating for anyone at any age. Um, but we, we specifically decided to gather young adults because, um, firstly, just the stories of the founders of the network, we kind of saw those people as our crew. We had, um, many of us had 
had experiences of profound loss, losing parents and, and beyond in our early 20s or before. And we noticed that the experience of grief in that time can sometimes come with a unique kind of isolation. Often one of the first people in a peer group losing someone. And so it feel it can be feel hard to turn to friends who don't understand. You also notice that grief support is relatively rarely directed explicitly towards young adults. There's a lot of support for kids. And um, if you show up to grief group at your average, you know, hospital or clinic or wherever, it, it tends to be older folks. So a lot of people have the experience of showing up and being among, you know, middle-aged widows and widowers, and which is its own hard experience, but just not the same experience. So especially in a pandemic where it felt like people weren't going to be able to gather and grieve in the ways that they had in the past, we felt strongly about focusing specifically on one group that we knew we could have their back really well and connecting them to people who could say, me too. I, I know this loss too. How crucial do you think it is that human beings learn to integrate loss into their life? I mean, we know that loss is just a part of life and impermanence is one of these laws of the universe that I think we grow more and more acquainted with the longer we're alive. Um, I can only really with confidence speak to my own experience losing my dad, which began with, after he died, I felt the sudden like rebellion against my life of like, I'm too young for this. Mm. Yeah, I just turned 26. It's actually not as young as many of the people that we serve. But it felt to me profoundly unfair, not how it was supposed to be, and that I wasn't grown up enough to have a profound loss. Um, and I had to kick and scream for some years, but it seemed to me in the wake of that loss and as it settled over you know, the last five years, that it's been a huge part of my coming of age. It's been like a, a second coming of age. And it took its time to kind of settle into that role in my life. I think people narrativize these things in their own unique ways and they all have to be okay. But for me, it has felt like losing and being honest about what we've lost and really looking it in the face and making meaning out of it, which happens in its own time, is a huge part of growing up. And hopefully, I hope, like becoming an elder of sorts or someday being able to have a wisdom. Gr grief seems to be intimately connected with wisdom in, in my experience. Yeah, I would, I would concur with that. I think um, my father died when I was 18. And that was the, it, it seems to be um, a really important marker in my maturation. It's like, the moment that I had to start dealing with issues that I had ignored as a teenager before that. And then I saw people in my peer group um, experiencing it in their 20s and their 30s when they suddenly were losing people. 
And, and I thought, this is something we go through. And you either ignore it, and I think it's your peril, frankly, or you deny its benevolence. Mm. I don't know if that's the right word. You know, the Franciscan notion of death being a friend. Mm. I think there's a way in which, you know, you can think of death as being a benevolent event, a sort of natural drawing to an end of a life in one way or another. It's not something that we always have to use a sort of militaristic language about, you know, Mm. that sort of common headline about so-and-so lost their battle with cancer. Mm. It's like they didn't they didn't lose a battle. They may have fought a disease, but they didn't lose. Mm. You know, it's like this is what happens to all of us. Our life draws to an end, sometimes violently, sometimes tragically, sometimes benevolently. Mm. And and being able to make meaning, the word the phrase you used, out of each of those seems to be the responsibility of all of us as human beings. We have to come to terms with it in some way. And it's not coming to terms with our own mortality that I'm talking about. I'm talking about dealing with the fact that people around us are going to die. Isn't there who I don't you know? I know. I'll ask the rabbinical student. Who is, who is the um, Jewish physician, medieval physician who said... Um, Tis a fearful thing to love what death can touch. Yeah, that's Yehuda Halevi, who writes beautifully about the challenge of loving what is not forever, which is everything. Yeah. Chloe, it reminds me of the Mary Oliver poem about the three things that you have to know how to do. Do you remember? You know that? Yeah, in, in Blackwater Woods, she says to live in this world, you must be able to do three things. To love what is mortal, to hold it against your bones, knowing your own life depends on it. And when the time comes to let it go, to let it go. Yeah. Yeah, I, I love that. That it, it's absolutely crucial to what it means to be a human being. You have to love what's mortal. Mm. And, we, and yet we spend half of our energy denying our mortality. It's a little absurd. It's hard to look at it. I think often religious traditions or spiritual traditions can help us look at it more clearly. In the fall, we move through the Jewish high holiday cycle, and Yom Kippur comes around, and it's a chance to kind of rehearse our own death. Um, We don't shower, and we don't brush our teeth, and we we don't do all these things that are kind of the maintenance of living beings. And we wear, traditionally, men are wearing the garb that they're buried in, the kittle. And it's kind of a a chance to see ourselves as mortal beings with the intention of awaking a sort of spiritual urgency in a safe container that this life is just once and to fully taste and live it. But this year it was making me think specifically of, just in such a broken year, of all the different ways that Judaism helps us to see and lift up brokenness as a part of life. And I was thinking about the, you know, infamous wedding ritual of taking a glass and smashing it at the chuppah, at the, at the wedding canopy. Um, in the most joyous moment, we're reminded of the world's brokenness, mm. and we bring that 
into it. That's the last act before, you know, the ceremony is complete. Um, you know, when someone dies, we, uh, participate in a ritual called Kriya, which means the tearing of tearing clothes or now more often tearing a black ribbon and wearing it on your heart for days. So, um, just reminding ourselves of the breaking and it made me think of in the Torah when Moses smashes the tablets at the foot of the mountain, um, after grieving the idolatry of the Israelites, he's like struck by his own grief. And then he, he feels his heartbreak. He breaks the tablets. And what happens to the tablets? The Talmud says the broken ones, they go in the holy ark and they're carted all around the wilderness and the desert. They don't get discarded, but they're like kept in the holiest place. So mm-hmm. there's something holy about grief and about this breaking that most traditions seem to realize. Um, and I think being around people that can see that and being in ritual spaces that aren't afraid of that can be profoundly powerful for people who are going through a massive breaking in their own lives. Yeah. That's so beautiful. You know, uh, Thanksgiving, is almost um, what's well, so highly ritualized, but it's not explicitly religious in our mm. in our culture. It's almost like secular religion for Americans. I'm I'm curious what you make of that that holiday and the experience of grief, mm. like those two ideas together that. You know, we've spoken about the fact that there are people gathered around a table and that there are going to be people missing from that table. But there are other ways that I think that maybe the experience of Thanksgiving and the experience of grief sort of go hand in hand sometimes. Mm. Yeah, I mean, on, I think, multiple levels of grief and complexity and Thanksgiving and the first obvious one that comes to mind is that it's also a holiday that marks genocide of the native peoples in this land. So for a whole group of people, it's, you know, inextricably linked to grief and loss. Thank you for remembering that. No. And then I think that it's centered as the family Mm -hmm. (laughs) time in mainstream American culture, perhaps it's can be really hard because we know that actually the holidays can uh, can bring up more loss than wholeness for all sorts of people actually for most people maybe um so kind of measuring our own experience against some yardstick of what it is supposed to be gets hard um but i think it 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 can be a really powerful reminder of the way that joy and loss and gratitude actually are like together create a minor chord, a really beautiful minor chord or something. They're not opposites, but they work together in strange and mysterious ways we don't understand. And actually reminds me of that Mark Nepo poem, everything is beautiful and I'm 
so sad. It's <laughs> <laughs> um, beautiful. The minor chord image is so uh, powerful. Mm. Earlier this fall, my, my sister died, and the days around her funeral, I'm feeling the echo of this minor chord. One of the images I can't get out of my head, and I don't really want to get out of my head, is of two of her grandchildren sitting, one on an ottoman, one on the floor, at the feet of two of her lifelong friends, uh, women that she had known for more than 60 years. And seeing those four women, girls, together talking and laughing the evening that we buried my sister was beautiful and heartbreaking at the same time. It's like the person who's missing from that conversation is the reason why we're all here together. But she's not here. Um, And seeing, you know, that generational compression happen through friendship... It was beautiful, mm-hmm. but it was that minor chord. It was it was beautiful and heartbreaking at the same time. Yeah, there there are ways in which those moments let the loss land in a way that's hard to do without gathering, without being feeling surrounded by the people who knew this person. I know in my own experience, those minor chord moments of really like getting to touch my dad's legacy, how he showed up in other people's lives, feel supported and seen by a lot of people who loved him fiercely. Mm. The loss can land and can kind of start to be digested or kind of metabolized into something new. And when I think about what folks who've lost someone to COVID, especially in the first year, lost on top of their person, it's those moments, Hmm. those minor chord moments where you can actually feel it. Here's a poem I ran into this week. Patricia McKernan Runkle. When you meet someone deep in grief is the title. When you meet someone deep in grief, slip off your needs and set them by the door. Enter barefoot, this darkened chapel, hollowed by loss, hallowed by sorrow, its gray stone walls and floor. You, congregation of one, are here to listen, not to sing. Kneel in the back pew, make no sound, let the candles speak.
You know, I think that's good advice. Let those rituals that we, that many of us have, yard site and votive mm-hmm. candles and lighting a flame against darkness. And, you know, we just went through Diwali for um, so many of the world's population. Again, a sort of celebration of light. Hanukkah's just around the corner. Um and, you know, there's another echo here. The reason we know one another is through a mutual friend, Sarah Saracen, whose birthday's in December, my birthday's in December, my sister, who just died's birthday's in December, a mutual friend of Sarah and me that we helped take care of, who died of HIV, his birthday was in December. And Sarah started referring to these luminaries in our lives as the December lights Mm. And I have never forgotten uh, that phrase. And, you know, I think about my sister and I think about Sarah and I think about Achille and I think uh, about all those people who are missing from the table this year and all the lights that we should be kindling to remember them. Mm. Chloe, I'm really grateful for the conversation and I'm grateful to Sarah for introducing us. Thanks. Happy Thanksgiving. You too. Chloe Zelka is a rabbinical student at Hebrew Union College in Cincinnati and a co-founder of the COVID Grief Network. You'll find a link to the network on our website, hearmenowpodcast.org 
Special thanks this week to our friend Sarah Saracen, and in thanksgiving for all the December lights. Earlier we heard an excerpt from Emma Donahue's 1995 novel Hood, published by HarperCollins. Evan Rachel Wood sang Blackbird, written by John Lennon and Paul McCartney, from the soundtrack to the 2007 film Across the Universe. And we're listening now to Thanksgiving from George Winston's recording December on Wyndham Hill Records. The Hear Me Now podcast is a production of the Providence Institute for Human Caring. Follow us on Twitter at human underscore caring. The program is produced by Scott Acord and Melody Fawcett. We have research help from medical librarians Amanda Schwartz, Seema Bakta, Sarah Viscuso, Catherine Gibbs, Carrie Grinstead, and Heather Martin. Our theme music was written by Roger Neal. The executive producer is Michael Drummond. We'll be back in two weeks with an episode exploring narrative medicine and the power of stories to heal. I hope you'll join us. I'm Sean Collins. Thanks for listening. Be well.